Well, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Jane Hughes, and I'm Head of Learning and Access for the Hunterian Museum. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all here to the Royal College of Surgeons this evening, and for the first in our um, series of lectures on sex and scandal in the 18th century. I think it's going to prove to be uh, quite interesting. Um, we're very delighted to welcome Wendy Moore to speak to us again this evening. Some of you may have heard her speak in um, previous years for us on her book, The Knife Man. Um, Wendy has been a journalist and a writer for more than 30 years, specialising predominantly in health and medical issues. She has written for national newspapers, including The Times, The Guardian and The Sunday Telegraph, as well as for professional magazines, such as the British Medical Journal and the Health Service Journal. Her writing led her to develop a great interest in the history of medicine, and about 10 years ago, she completed the Diploma in the History of Medicine of the Society of Apothecaries, winning the Maccabean Prize for the best dissertation that year. Shortly afterwards, she decided to write a biography of John Hunter, the knife man, the extraordinary life and times of John Hunter, father of modern surgery, which um, was published in February 2005. So that coincided nicely for us with the opening of the extensively refurbished Ontarian Museum. So thanks very much for that, Wendy. <laughs> um, the Guardian described it as a gruesome but fascinating biography, definitely not for the squeamish. This visceral portrait offers a wonderful insight into sickness, suffering and surgery in the 18th century. Excellent. Wendy has just published her latest book, Wedlock, How Georgian Britain's Worst Husband Met His Match, and this forms the basis of her talk this evening. So I'd like to hand over to Wendy to speak on the Countess, the Surgeon, her husband and his lover. Okay. Thank you very much, Jane, and um, thank you everyone to come for coming. Um, it's um, a real pleasure to be back here at the Royal College of Surgeons um, to talk about, um, to give actually my first talk on my second book. Um, I'm sure despite that lovely introduction that the staff at the museum here thought they'd seen the back of me after my last book, uh, which was of course um, a biography of John Hunter. But if they've only got themselves to blame that I'm back here again because it was actually the museum curator, Simon Chaplin, who pointed me in the direction of my second book, Wedlock, which tells the story of Mary Eleanor Bowes, the Countess of Strathmore. And in fact, you could say that it was Simon who launched me on the road to sex and scandal, historically speaking, anyway. <laughs> um, well, all I knew of Mary Eleanor Bowes from writing my book on John Hunter's life was that she was a wealthy society figure a rather eccentric blue stocking and an amateur botanist who donated to Hunter the skin of a giraffe from an expedition that she organized to Southern Africa. Their relationship, as far as I could tell, all seemed very worthy and above board. Both were well-known, highly respected members of 18th century society. But both, however, had their secrets. And as I began to delve into Mary Eleanor's life at uh, Simon's suggestion, I soon discovered that the surgeon and the countess were inextricably mixed up together in a series of murky, clandestine, and illicit activities, which threw quite a different light on both of them. Well, I had no idea how they were both emerged from my research into these underhand dealings. Would I have to rethink my view of Hunter 
as a pioneering and ultimately heroic scientist? Would Mary Eleanor's reputation as an intelligent and philanthropic patron of the arts and science remain intact? Well, my investigations have proved to be a fascinating journey. And to divulge the outcome of that journey, to reveal the sex and scandal that you've all been promised, I need to explain a little about both characters and how their lives crossed. Now, as I know many of you already know, John Hunter was born in 1728 in this house, um, in a relatively humble farming family living in Scotland. And after training in anatomy with his brother William in London, Hunter rose to become the most popular and the highest earning surgeon in the second half of the 18th century. Well, by the time that he lived in this elegant house, Leicester Square, and this is a model that was in the museum, Hunter was treating the celebrities of his day, including the economist, Adam Smith, the Prime Minister, William Pitt, and the future poet, the young Lord Byron. He was a leading light in the Royal Society for his pioneering research in human anatomy and his groundbreaking work as a naturalist. Hunter's obsession with investigating every form of organic life culminated in his remarkable collection, which is still preserved in this museum here today. During his lifetime, Hunter pioneered numerous innovations which improved medicine, but his lasting legacy, just as important now as ever, was his insistence on applying the principles of science to surgery, to medicine in general. And he's still rightly revered today as the founder of scientific surgery. Well, of course, I already knew that Hunter had his secrets, his dark side. Hunter owed his knowledge in anatomy to his underworld connections with professional body snatchers who stole corpses from paupers' graveyards and delivered them to his back door every night. This is a fairly accurate uh, depiction, comic as it may look, of what the body snatchers were up to. Well, I also already knew that he had his enemies. Hunter's outspoken views and his maverick ideas earned him bitter rivals and sworn enemies within his own profession. And chief among these critics was one rather arrogant young surgeon called Jesse Foote, who seemed to take it upon himself to scrutinize Hunter's work and ridicule his ideas. And in fact, when Hunter died, his fellow surgeons at St. George's Hospital raised 400 pounds, not for his widow, but to get Foote to write a poisonous biography of Hunter. And in this character assassination, Foote wrote that Hunter was incapable of putting six lines together grammatically into English and a very inferior dangerous and irregular practical surgeon to boot. And yet it seems, I now know, that Jesse Foote's lifelong feud with John Hunter owes as much to their connections with Mary Eleanor Bowes and the sex and the scandal which marked her life as to professional rivalry. Well, extremely wealthy, highly educated, Mary Eleanor Bowes enjoyed quite different origins to John Hunter. Born in 1749, she was the only child of a phenomenally rich coal owner, George Bowes, who had developed a sprawling and beautiful estate called Gibside in County Durham. And this, 
was Mary's childhood home, Gibbside. And although today it's actually in ruins, I think you can see it's um, considerably more luxurious than Hunter's birthplace. Privileged and pampered, Mary Eleanor enjoyed the education that was normally reserved for the sons of the aristocracy. And when her father died in 1760, when she was only 11, she became the richest heiress in Britain, due to inherit a fortune of between 600,000 pounds and 1 million pounds. Sorry, 1 million pounds. So nowadays, that would be worth between 80 million and 150 million. So not surprisingly, Mary became a magnet for fortune hunters. Pursued by an assortment of suitors, at 16, she set her sights on John Lyon, the handsome and worldly 28-year-old Earl of Strathmore, known as the beautiful Lord Strathmore, in fact. Well, they were married in 1767 on Mary's 18th birthday in an alliance which forged the Bow's Lyon name. And in fact, one of the couple's five children, Thomas, would become great-great-grandfather to Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the Queen Mother, who spent her childhood at the Strathmore family, family seat, Glam's Castle. In fact, it was probably through one of her five pregnancies, or the mysterious fits, which Mary complained of, that she met John Hunter. And for all their contrasting backgrounds, they were kindred spirits. For as well as being regarded as a talented writer, Mary had built up a considerable reputation as a botanist and a substantial collection of botanical specimens in the huge greenhouses that she owned. In fact, she was described by Jessie Foote, no less, as the most intelligent botanist of the age. And this portrait um, shows Mary with her eldest daughter, Maria, um, in about 1775, which is about the time that she um, got to know John Hunter. Well, Hunter became a regular visitor to Mary's glamorous London home in Grosvenor Square, which is where she hosted scientific gatherings for some of the leading thinkers of the day. As well as Hunter, her guests included the naturalist Daniel Salander, who accompanied James Cook on his first voyage, and Joseph Planter, one of the secretaries of the Royal Society. And it was probably with the encouragement of Hunter and Salander that Mary agreed in 1775 or 6 to sponsor an expedition, sending a young Scottish gardener called William Patterson to explore uncharted parts of southern Africa in search of new botanical species. Patterson set sail in May 1777 and made four expeditions in the Cape region. In fact, Patterson was only the second British explorer to visit southern Africa, and he travelled further into the Cape interior than anyone before him. Well, it was on Patterson's fourth and final expedition that he came across the quite remarkable sight of six giraffes. Having never been seen by European explorers before, the giraffe had acquired almost mythical status. Many Western naturalists actually doubted its existence. Patterson brought back the skeleton and the skin of one of the males on his return journey in 1780. And it was this that Mary donated to John Hunter. And it was actually the first giraffe ever seen in this country. So this painting is thought to have been actually done by John Hunter. Well, Hunter was absolutely thrilled with this present 
because nothing excited Hunter more than a new exotic species. And he probably had the skin stuffed. And then he displayed it in his hall with the legs cut off to fit. <laughs> I imagine it must have made a rather unsettling welcome for his patients. So Mary Ellen Bowes was patient, friend and patron to John Hunter. All very respectable. But it transpires that by the time she gave him the giraffe skin, events had actually taken a serious turn for the worse for Mary. And John Hunter was intimately involved in these changes. Well, Mary's marriage to Lord Strathmore was not wedded bliss. <clears throat> Cold and aloof, the Earl did not approve of her literary and scientific pursuits any more than he approved of her literary and scientific friends. And so when he died of tuberculosis in March 1776, Mary shed few tears. Well, at a time when divorce was extremely difficult to obtain and also socially unthinkable, the death of a spouse was often the only way to escape an unhappy marriage. And this was particularly true for women because a married woman's property and her entire income belonged absolutely to her husband, whereas in widowhood, a woman could actually enjoy financial independence again. So not only was Mary in control of her vast fortune, for the first time, in fact, she was also free to pursue an independent life. So she was a decidedly merry widow. <laughs> Despite this picture where she's looking uh, suitably glum, in fact, this portrait, um, which is at Glam's Castle, is thought to be Mary, it's not certain, in her widow's costume at about that time. And as you will find out now, there's good reason why it only shows her head and shoulders. Well, shortly before her husband's death, while the Earl was sailing for Portugal in a last attempt to restore his health, Mary had taken a lover, a rather rakish entrepreneur called George Grey. And by the time that she heard of the Earl's death, in April 1776, Mary was pregnant with her lover's child. Well, having welcomed Grey into her home and her bed with increasing regularity since the Earl's departure abroad, it was scarcely surprising that Mary had become pregnant. 18th century knowledge of con contraception was rudimentary at best. Although condoms had actually been invented in the 17th century, they were generally used only as prophylactics against um, sexual diseases rather than as contraceptives. So when Mary wrote in a text which was later published as the Confessions of the Countess of Strathmore that all the time of my connection with Mr. Gray, precautions were taken, she was most likely referring to the withdrawal method. Well, when this failed and she found herself pregnant by April 1776, she had few options. To marry Grey so soon after the death of her husband and give birth to a child so obviously conceived after the Earl's departure abroad would create untold scandal in Georgian society. And not only would that mean social death for Mary Eleanor, it would taint forever the reputation of her unborn child and very likely lead to her losing the five children of her marriage. But to give birth 
as an unmarried mother to an illegitimate child would provoke even worse outrage with possibly even more dire consequences. So the obvious option she had left was to attempt an abortion. Well, there's no doubt that abortions have been performed since earliest times, often with the collusion of medical practitioners and the sanction of church and state. Knowledge of herbs and other natural products which can produce miscarriage have always been passed among women and handed down from generation to generation. Plants like rue and savin, or the fungus ergot, were often grown by midwives and herbalists to procure abortions. And at the same time, orthodox medical do male doctors, who in the 18th century still believed in the ancient Greek doctrine of balancing bodily humours, they believed that it was harmful for women to miss menstruation because this was an imbalance in the humours. So they often prescribed medication for women who had missed periods, probably similar substances and probably with similar effects. Now, although early Christians had condemned attempts to end pregnancy, English common law permitted abortion so long as the fetus had not been felt to move. And it would be 1803 before a law was actually passed in Britain forbidding abortion. So in London, in 1776, it was relatively easy for Mary Eleanor to arrange an abortion. That's not to say it was without risk. Both doctors and midwives and the women who consulted them were extremely careful to avoid publicizing attempts at abortion. Precisely because of the legal constraints, the religious concerns, and the general social unease, advertisements for herbal concoctions to bring about abortion were extremely discreet. Very few printed accounts of abortion have therefore survived. And Mary Ellen of Bose's description of her abortion attempts in her so-called confessions is therefore almost unique. Well, at first, she writes in her confessions, she asked her lover, Gray, to obtain a quack medicine he'd heard of for miscarriage. Now, Mary described this potion as a black, inky kind of medicine that looked and tasted as if it contained copper. Well, the medicine apparently worked, or at least a mis miscarriage ensued. It's obviously difficult to determine which. Yet despite her efforts at prevention, Mary became pregnant again by Gray, not just once, but three times more. And so three times more, she attempted an abortion. The second time, the black inky medicine did its trick again. But the third time, when it failed, she drank an anemetic, washed down with large amounts of brandy and pepper, which seemingly induced her third abortion. But she would later number these three abortions among her crimes in her confessions. Well, when Mary became pregnant for the fourth time in that same year, all efforts at abortion failed. She was very unlucky or <laughs> very reckless. So who could she turn to, still in her mourning costume, several months pregnant with her lover's child? Well, the obvious person 
was her trusted friend and loyal surgeon, John Hunter. Now the evidence is ambiguous, but nonetheless convincing. And it comes from a later court case, during which Hunter was asked to explain a letter Mary had written to a friend, in which she said, I am not able to assure you that either my soul or body are at your service. For to confess the truth, I have at present neither in my possession. J. Hunter, having torn to pieces my body. Well, rather evasively, Hunter replied in court that he believed the note referred to some medicines that Mary took before her second marriage. And when he was pressed to say whether she was then pregnant and desired an abortion, he insisted that he was not sure. Well, whatever Hunter did, and it's not clear whether his help entailed more potions or even some attempt at a surgical termination, it was in vain. But by this stage, unlikely as it might seem, Mary's life had become even more complicated. Not only was she pregnant, but she was torn between two lovers. Well, by the middle of 1776, Mary had resigned herself to marrying George Grey and giving birth secretly abroad. But when a charming Irish soldier who called himself Captain Andrew Robinson Stoney arrived in town that summer, Mary soon fell under his spell. Now, you may wonder why <laughs> from this picture, but I assure you this is a caricature, and um, it seemed definitely that Stoney seemed to possess a magnetic appeal for women. So he flattered Mary with expensive presents, and he quickly inveigled himself into her <coughs> circle. Well, before long, the Morning Post newspaper, the scandal sheet of its day, began publishing scurrilous gossip about Mary and her two beaux. And so when Stoney then insisted on fighting a duel with the editor of the newspaper to defend Mary's honour, she was enthralled. So the duel took place, apparently, in the Adelphi Tavern off the Strand, not far from here, on the 13th of January, 1777. And in the fracas, Stoney was seemingly wounded, and the surgeon, who was called urgently to the scene, and who promptly declared him mortally injured, was none other than 